0: you're listening to errol parker and clancy overall editors of the batuta advocate on desert rock fm welcome back to the batuta advocate radio show you're joined by myself clancy overall and uh, errol parker editor at large there's been a lot going on in the news a lot less than there was earlier in the year but yeah we're dealing with the Whole lot of things right now cost of living, lettuce prices have gone through the roof, didn't see that one coming. Energy crisis, inflation, uh, there's been a minimum wage hike, there's a lot going on. And in times like this, in you know, uncertain times, chaos be that political or socioeconomic or global uh, instability we often turn to one thing, at least in Batuta, we do, and that is rock and roll music. It's been there with us over the years through uh, thick and thin. And today's guest is, I guess, a pioneer of Australian rock music, and he's been there with us through thick and thin. Uh, he's been on our TV screens, he's been on our radios, he's been at our house parties, he's been everywhere. It's a real honour to have him in here today to talk to us about what he's been working on most recently. Dave Faulkner from the Hooter Gurus, thank you for coming on the Batuta Advocate Radio Show. You've, you've had a bit going on. You can boast nine... Top twenty albums. In Is the that areas. right? Okay. Yeah. Nine top twenty albums, host of multi platinum albums. Yeah, we've done all that. Been around for a while. Something like that happens eventually. You don't seem to be slowing down, mate. <laughs> we have. I mean, it's,
1: t- it's been twelve years since our last record, so that's kind of slow. But there's a few things going on there. But um, we're still same on stage. We haven't lost any uh, speed on stage. That's for sure. We, you know, and I think the record sounds like as fresh as anything we've done. So I
0: think we sound all right. We introduced you as a um, a rock star, but you were born into a political military family over there in Perth.
1: I was. uh, My parents were both very active in the Labor Party, and my mother actually worked for. um, She worked in electoral office of a local member, and uh, and also she um, was very active in community in local politics. She ended up becoming a um, the first female councillor for the Belmont Shire in Western Australia. She went into that because she loved reading, and. Uh, my mother was pretty much self-educated. She came from a fairly poor background in in Melbourne during the depression, and she loved books. And every week she'd go to the library, and, you know, up to the, basically to the end of her life, where she'd get like an armful of books and read them every week. Mostly detective and thrillers. Yeah, <laughs> she loved that stuff. But the, um,
0: the airport novella.
1: Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, more than, yeah, the sort of Agatha Christie and the, I don't know what the, the various authors she went for because there's a million of them. But, um, yeah, so she got a library built in the, in the district because there wasn't one. Yeah, right. And uh, that was her big platform and they ended up naming it after
0: her. So, yeah, very active. And can you tell us, I mean, you're one of, and I hate to pigeonhole you, I wouldn't say the hoodoo gurus fit any archetype, <laughs> but a lot of people have come from Perth and and formed their band in Sydney. How did that wave happen? What was the immigration route? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what
2: was the trip like on the Indian Pacific?
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, we I drove over, um, oh, but um, oh, but right. uh, yeah, I've done
1: that a few times. But back then, you know, there was no internet, and you know, the record companies basically are based you know, in Sydney and Melbourne. That was yeah. it, and they wouldn't pay attention to anyone that wasn't passing under their noses in yep. Sydney or Melbourne, so you had to be come quite well known and tour those places. Well. I don't know. I'd, I'd travelled for a year when I was in uh, my 20s, early 21, and I was, I was over in America and the, and the UK mostly. And I just came back and thought, well, I'm kind of sick of being stuck in Perth where no one, you know, ever, you, you form a band and it you kind of last about six months then break up because you're kind of worn out your welcome after yeah. that time. Finite audience. And also in the case of the music we were playing, you know, writing our own songs, it wasn't uh, very acceptable back then. Yeah. Because um, people the thought if the songs were any good, I'd hear them on the radio already. Yeah, so yeah. they can't be any good. Just Because, you know, a bit of, a bit of yeah. the old, you know, tall yeah. poppy or whatever you call it, the cultural cringe, actually, yeah. it's what it is. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's the reason I, I moved to uh, the East Coast and I had to choose between Sydney or Melbourne. And my mother's from Melbourne. Yep. So I chose Sydney because oh, yeah, wow. <laughs> um, I have a million relatives and I thought, well, I'm just leaving one family. I want to kind of strike out my own. I might stay yeah. away from family a bit. So um, I, I had some uncles, an uncle here and, and, and so forth, but uh, I've got dozens and dozens of cousins everywhere in Melbourne especially
2: so is music always going to be the path you were going to go down or nah. were you uh, were you looking at heading out to uh, Cresswell to go into the naval officer school
1: <laughs> no I was never cut out for the military my father was in the Navy in the war but he wasn't a lifetime uh, you know military Office, you know, serving, but um, he actually was a worked for the GPO, the post office. Yeah, right. Mail sorter most of his life. He had other jobs on the side. He had several jobs at various points, like at the same time, worked at the markets because he had a, a growing family, and uh, and that was just the way it was done in those days. But I was actually more of an artist when I was a kid. Everyone thought I was I was good at painting and drawing, and they thought, well, you can't do that for a living. Mm-hmm. So uh, this idea of art, forget that. And uh, they kind of coached me, or you know, guided me towards architecture. My mother, in particular, mm. this new career we've heard of.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it just seemed like yeah, you can use your drawing for something yeah, useful. Yeah. They always say that. They said, yeah, I suppose back then aspiring artists became uh, architects and yeah, nowadays they become advertising guys <laughs> or script or, or novelists i've seen a few of them become novelists or scriptwriters. but uh yeah
1: architecture i tried it i'd done a music all my life yep. and you know had bands at high school and we play all the school socials and stuff like that
0: so that was school bands or were you no in no it's our
1: own band yeah right. our own band that yeah. was just basically um you know was from kids at school yep. we were Cheap, and we played the songs everyone liked. Yep. You know, it was a weird combination of songs. We'd play glam rock and heavy rock, and you know, Beatles songs. You hmm. together we didn't see any disparity between playing Alice Cooper and Susie Quattro and uh, Deep Purple and whatever. You, you know, played Back the Sabbath. hits. Played the hits. We just <laughs> played the songs everyone liked yeah, at the yeah. time. We didn't, you know, we weren't really schooled on the uh, various genres. But um, yeah, we actually, you know, did all right. We even play other schools, so we kind of got a reputation. Yeah. So, and I played keyboards then. Anyway, I st- went to architecture. But at the same time, I was playing all this music and I never went to lectures and couldn't be bothered and I just failed that dismally. And Mm -hmm. at the end of that year, I had to sort of look myself in the eye and figure out who the hell I was. And that was obviously a musician. So I went and got a job so I could buy some equipment because I'm a keyboard player and they're kind of hefty
0: and pricey. Mm -hmm. And eventually I just, yeah, here I am. So your first band that kind of, uh, I mean, I guess the first one that got a bit of noise over in WA was The Victims. Well certainly the one that people have heard about I mean yep. I was in other bands
1: as well that kind of were popular in mm. WA at the time yep. you know I joined a band called the Beagle Boys first they're a blues group mm. that was kind of the underground scene in those days mm. I mean it still probably is you know that sort of blues and roots scene mm. WA is quite famous for it yeah and uh, you know John Butler I think has sort of yep. tapped into that yeah but I was in this group they were going before I I joined and I just came in and right towards the end and yeah they lasted about another 6 months but the funny thing is I was already obsessed with punk rock when I joined the band yep. And uh, this was like 1976, and I basically was trying to teach myself guitar, so I could go and form my own punk rock group, which happened, as you say, formed the, the Victims in mid 77.
0: And what was the influence there? What was the, I mean, punk rock is something that was happening at that time, but what were you seeing? I mean, well, in Perth, nothing. You know, yeah, like that's it. We felt like we were completely isolated and marooned from from the culture
1: we were identifying with. You know, we went to the record shops that sold the overseas music magazines, Melody Maker, NME Sounds, and, you know, like Rock Scene and people, other magazines from the US. And then, um, you know, we'd read about these artists. And in fact, we read about the Ramones before we ever heard them. Yep. And it just sounded so exciting what they were doing, we were desperate to hear it, and we we could only imagine what this music sounded like <laughs> from the descriptions. Eventually we got the album, the Ramones album, and it blew our minds. Yep. I mean, it wasn't quite what I expected, actually, because it, it was so poppy, which yep. surprised me. I was expecting uh, what, I guess... When I heard the Sex Pistols, that was more yeah, what I expected, yeah, yeah, right. you know, kind of angry music. And yeah. the Ramones had a aggro, but it was really different, you know. And, I, and they're still my favourite band from that era. And, uh, you know, I think they're one of the classic bands of all time. So, yeah, I just loved that. And we, we were in Perth and we felt kind of like a little bit aggrieved, you know, we you know, angry teenagers anyway. Yeah. And isolated. That's yeah. And isolated. Thing. Well, Perth yeah. is, you know, I mean, Australia is isolated from the rest of the world. Well, Perth is that times, you know, squared. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, the desert is a huge barrier to anything yeah. <laughs> happening. And, you know, bands would come to play in Australia and they wouldn't got across the, the desert no. to Nullarbor Plain to Perth. And that was another source of aggravation for me. I remember one day I was there was a concert was going to be advertised. Iggy Pop was coming on tour. This was about probably like 1978, early 78. And it was the Pope of Punk. And there was this big – he was playing at the Entertainment Centre in Perth. And it was kind of like, wow, this is incredible, Iggy Pop in Perth. So I queued up hours before the box office opened. And there's already lots of people there, huge crowds. I thought, man, oh man, this Iggy Pop is suddenly quite popular and got to the box office. And eventually, after they opened up and and got to, and I thought, well, one, what seats I'll get? And I got middle of the front row. I thought oh. this is kind of strange. <laughs> And then later on, I found out, of course, all these people were buying tickets for ELO. Oh, right. (laughs) Which was also on sale the same day. So, um, and Iggy Pop, unfortunately, never made it. He probably only sold about 10 tickets in Perth. At at that time, I mean, obviously, now he'd be fine.
0: Just lop that one off the end of the tour.
1: Yeah, so we were stuck in Perth and we just thought, you know, this music we love and, and and, you know, everything we were reading about just seems so exotic. And we felt like, you know, everyone around us was completely oblivious and and
0: didn't care about things that we cared about. Was there political – I mean, I know the isolation thing was a big one. I know Brisbane's punk rock scene. That was a big thing they even talk about. You don't really look at Brisbane like that anymore. But back then, under Joe, they were isolated.
1: Oh, and also it was quite a heavy police presence (laughs) against the punks in in Brisbane. We weren't as bothered by police in in WA, in Perth. I mean, they didn't like us, but they weren't particularly uh, focusing on us. We had more trouble
2: from skinheads. Yeah. And, okay. uh, and other people, but um, skinheads <laughs> were the biggest ones that wanted to bash us up. Yeah. So how does it make you feel now knowing that the Perth music scene now is really at the forefront of the Australian popular music scene? I mean, you've got some of the biggest acts in the world coming from Perth. Yeah, of course. I mean, Tame was the biggest one, of course. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's
1: fantastic. I mean, I, I love WA and, and my family musicians even that back then, you know, they produced people like Dave McComb and Kim Salmon, you know, these are great artists and, and uh, really have contributed a lot to music. So uh, I never was in doubt of the talent pool. Yeah. And nowadays, of course, there's no necessity to go anywhere to, yeah. to, make, your, to make your name. You can do it from your bedroom if, you, if you're good enough or if you have the, maybe a bit of luck as well to get yourself noticed and put on blogs or whatever and come to attention. But the internet is the great, you know, yeah. Yeah, Kevin Parker. forget having to buy, you know, save up to buy a yeah. flight to
0: London, you know, yeah. and land there with with the suitcase and, and, and Hopes, you know. We That's gone, that era. Kevin Parker can still be number one ticket holder at Frio and make <laughs> albums that are going all around the world. I know, it's crazy. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's, but it's great, you know,
1: and, and there's other bands like that too. Methyl Ethel's another one like yep. that, yeah. you know. But, yeah, it's, it's different times and, I, and I'm really glad that that's true, you know, because, yep. I mean, yeah, I, I we talked a lot of shit on Perth when we were young, you know, and I don't. I mean it's changed anyway mm. but also that's just kind of the age we were at and yeah. you know and just being you know, hot under the collar, and, yeah. and thinking that we were cooler than everyone else. Big city kids, yeah, and just yeah. snotty, you know. And yeah. but you know, Perth's actually a pretty damn good place, and I I think Western Australia is the best state. There's no doubt in my mind about that. So, uh, controversial that, comments, but that's, that's what we're not here controversial for. at all. <laughs> I mean, I think I mean all Australia has something <laughs> fabulous about it. Every state, you know, even South Australia, which is kind of like you know, I mean, all besides all the wine, there's you know, a lot of lot of barrenness like WA. But <laughs> but um you know, West Australia has the tropics and the yeah. Margaret River. I mean, it's just incredible.
0: Uh, anyway, I'm not here to talk. About that it's it's a vast it's yeah it is vast yeah. and it's a vast landscape and you can hear that you can hear the different I mean as you said before the blues and roots thing that very much I would say related to the lifestyle that people are living. Well, there's a little bit of a lotus
1: eating thing going on in WA. Yeah. It always has been, you know, Perth because life is pretty good there. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> well. Would you trade the Sharkies for the Western Reds?
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I never did, so no. <laughs> um, I, but I you know, did sort of meet up
1: with uh, Julian O'Neill when he was over there. <laughs> 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 it was a very funny story. I don't know if tell it, but anyway. He's a, he's a nice bloke, Off but uh, he obviously had a bit of a problem at the time, so uh, I yeah. don't want to
0: go into that. Well, when WA decided to launch themselves into rugby league, they did attract a lot of the bad boys of the game <laughs> over there in the Western Reds. Yeah, they really were the Cuddle and Dragons in the Super <laughs> League. Yeah. <laughs> So, you go from the victims to the mannequins.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then- I had one band in between that, yep. that was called the Midget and the Farrellies. They were kind of this again, it was like a repudiation of mm-hmm. the victims almost. I yep. was doing something so anti punk because I mm-hmm. kind of got I was sick of the whole regimentation of yep. punk and yep. the kind of orthodoxy of it. Yeah. So I did the opposite. I did this cabaret band, mm-hmm. and somehow made a lot of money quite quickly, and that's what funded my trip to overseas. See, okay,
0: overseas first. Cabaret,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah cabaret. But oh, we call it cabaret, but it's basically like weird covers from the early '60s, which that, at Rivers that time no one was doing. Yeah. yeah, and we did it for like zero cost. We carried our own gear. We had like a little column PA. There was no roadies, no hiring of fancy PAs. Just we could set up in the corner of a carpet on a, on a, in a pub somewhere and play. But somehow it got very popular very quickly. And uh, we made a lot of money, and I, after three months, I bought a ticket overseas and left three months later. So, it and what quite, was that? Was you know, that like a was that a research trip, or you were going over there to stay? Or I was just going away because it was like you know you're 21, yep. you want to see the world. I'd yep. already been talking the okay. talk for a long yep. time about get the hell out of Perth and see the world. You know, yep. we feel stuck here. And uh, that's what I did, you know. I mean, a lot of Australians did it, not just
2: music fans. Yeah, for sure. The London push, mate. Like, that's it. But I went to New York mainly. All <laughs> oh, right. So cabaret music was essentially, you know, the first kind of like the mining boom in WA. Like, that's, <laughs> you know, that's where the kids go and make their money and then they leave, you know. <laughs> it was a bit like that.
1: I was a FIFO. I flew out. <laughs> yeah. I didn't fly in. But um, there was a lot of, you know, successful bands in Perth that weren't, but they all played covers, you know, and they'd usually find a genre or something. And, the Farrelly's wasn't really like that, but it sort of ended up being like that. But that was the mainstream of music in Perth. And the bands like that I was in, like The Victims and the other bands that came in the wake of The Victims, because we were the first real wave of you know bands that wrote their own songs at that time. And there had been, back in the 60s, some bands that had written songs. And Bakery was one, I think, in the late 60s. Sid Rumpo. But you know, there had been a big void for a long time because there just wasn't any industry to support it. And as I say, the attitude also was that you know if you if it's a new song, it
2: can't be any good because you know I'd have heard it already. So you p- said before that you went to New York. Um, what mm. was it like going there for the first time? You know, as a kid from Perth? it was weird. I I was in Times Square
1: and it was I had this very strange experience where I felt like I'd been there before and I hadn't had that anywhere else. But I literally felt I'd I'd been there before, you know, yeah. past life or something. But either way, I felt really comfortable there, and it was a great time to be there. It was 1979. This was, you know, post-punk, but it was still incredibly, you know, fertile time. I saw the Cramps for the first time. They were a band that were just, you know, had been around for a couple of years, but were just starting to get a bit more acclaim, or whatever, a bit more noticed. Beefy the Twos, yep. their first album was coming out then. I saw Talking Heads doing a like a secret show for their third album. And like it was a very, you know, very you know, early time, and also all the bands you'd never heard of. That were popping up and playing. And and I I also started seeing vintage acts that I'd never heard of before, I mean, or hadn't seen. I mean, I saw Jerry Lee Lewis in a club performing, you know, John Cale. I mean, I'd heard of these people, obviously, but, you know, the chance to see them in a small venue like that was incredible. And it was really um, a study tour, is how it felt to me. Finishing school. Yeah, right. But it really opened up my eyes. I mean, I'd already wanted to as I say, expand my taste after punk because it was punk was kind of like a little bit like year zero in musical terms. It kind of like purified everything down to its ascent, essence. Yeah. And, it was, and then after that, it was like, well, yeah, that's great. But that's given me a kind of like a, an anvil to strike things against. But I actually want to find more things out there to kind of work with. And I was broadening my taste. I discovered country music. I mean, I'd heard of country music, obviously, yeah. but I hadn't liked it. Yeah. So, I, you know, I fell in love with country music via Elvis, actually, yep. the Sun Sessions. And, uh, you know, I was also deeply researching into 60s punk garage, you know, bands from the mid-60s that were influenced by the Yardbirds and the Stones, you know, these one-hit wonders. Yeah. And uh, things like that. So it was kind of like a real growth phase for me. And it also gave me a – I came back and formed the Hoodoo is like, well, it took a little while because I ended up coming back and joining the Mannequins for a little while yep. in Perth because I had – my tail between my legs were broke, really. Yeah. <laughs> Just came back and had to pay, pay my parents back for the return ticket. And, yes. and eventually I moved to Sydney and started The Gurus a few months later. But
0: but it was first known as this funny band with three guitars and no bass. That's right. It was Le known Gurus. as Le Gurus. <laughs> mm. Who were these fellas? Where'd you meet them? And how'd you come up with that? Well, Rod
1: was uh, someone from the punk scene in Perth. He'd mm-hmm. been in the scientist at one point. Mm-hmm. And the punk scene in Perth was very small. Yes. So we all knew each other and loved, you know, and fans of each other's bands. So Rod independently moved over with his girlfriend, Erica, and uh, we were all sharing a house. And Where were you living? Palmer Lane in, in Darlinghurst. Oh, yeah, nice. Um, Back when it was a red light district. Yeah, that yeah, area. Nice, Um, you
0: know, uh, good, good area. It was a great area. It was fantastic.
1: <laughs> and Kimball was actually someone I knew through another girl from the punk scene, a, a yeah. good friend of mine at the time. We actually have fallen out subsequently, sadly. Her name was Eva, and her boyfriend was Kimball, who was in the Capris. He had just left that band a little while ago at the time or it was just leaving them i don't know how quite why how it worked out but uh we just happened to be a new year's eve party a few months after i got to to town and just talking about music and i you know all the different things we liked and how there were other bands in we'd seen that none of them were doing the sort of influences that we were interested in Mm -hmm. and so we just thought let's form a group and that was as easy as that conversation over over a bottle long neck of beer yeah all right the ball's
0: rolling there you kind of Well uh, eventually yeah,
1: Eventually <laughs> Took us nine months To play a gig yeah. James joined a few months later We were working And James The, the signers Somehow uh, They broke up in Perth Kim for some reason Wanted to break the band up And so James wrote A letter saying Look I hear you need, you're, you're forming a group And I'm a drummer I want to move to, to Sydney or Melbourne So how about I become your drummer And so that's what happened And he came over And we only could rehearse on weekends because we all had day jobs to pay the enormous yeah, rents yeah. That, yeah. You know, in <laughs> Sydney. <laughs> what kind of day jobs did you have then? I mean, like. Uh, well, James used to work in like kitchen hand stuff. Yeah. Uh, right. I'm not sure what Rob was doing. Um, I forget the things. He had lots of different weird jobs. Uh, my job, though, I had a, a job at a place called Hospital Products, and it was a bit of a scam company. They, <laughs> they did this, this product called Surgical Staples. Yep. Which are like cassettes that hold little staples that they can zip you up on the inside, and basically has a little concealed blade that will slice open an organ and then stitch it up with yep. the staples and join it together again. It's a bit <laughs> right. It's a, it's, a, it's technology that's still used. All oh, right, um, yeah. you know when you hear people stapling their stomachs, yeah, 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 that's right. that. Oh, product, that's okay. that same company. Yeah. But this, what happened, The way they started was actually the person who began the company was that had worked for that a parent company or well, not a parent company, but the, the same technology in America, yeah. and they'd researched the patents and found out that the one country they hadn't registered patents for (laughs) this technology was Australia. So he came to Australia (laughs) and stole the technology and started a rival company in the hopes that they'd buy him out. And I think that's eventually what happened. (laughs) But I was working there at this sort of startup basically, and it was a clean room. So I looked a bit like Homer Simpson with the full top to toe. um, Hazmat. Yeah, hazmat thing on. It it was basically just dust free. So uh, we work on this sort of
0: NASA sort of filtered technology and all this sort of stuff. After a hard day in that environment, I can imagine you want to go back down to Darlow the long necked piss and start playing or a, some music, or a, or a
1: you know, or a flagon. You know, <laughs> yeah. flagons
0: were very good in those days. Yeah.
1: there's before even the uh, the cask one was you know very popular. Mm. Oh yeah, the bigger, yeah, well, what do they call them
0: now? Growlers, yeah, big yeah. A big jar of it. Well, you yeah. could get a
1: flagon for like two bucks. Yeah, you know, yeah. up up at the uh, Oxford uh, Hotel there, yeah. up on Taylor Square. And go to the Tin Hong next door and get those giant spring rolls. Two of those for about two bucks. So you had a meal and a, and a night's entertainment in the case of a flag, and you know, and, and talking shit and writing songs.
0: When did you start hearing about people who had heard about you from people you didn't know? You know, when did you start hearing that your name was getting around? Ah, gee, that's a hard one. I, we were playing the Marubra Seals,
1: headlining yep. there, and it was all the surfers loved us, and there's just this heaving mass of people and um, my friend went there and she came in the room she said the smell overwhelmingly was hmm, feminine yeah may I say that yeah and she said it was just hit her like a wave yeah you know we were so hot yeah but that's the audience experience for us up on stage it's just a gig and we got lights and yeah yeah sound blasting at us and we're just trying not to make a, you know, make a mistake or look like idiots. Yeah. So you're kind of like you're in your own world. It's like a little yeah. bit, I mean, it's it's hard to imagine that when you sort of, you know, say, how can you not notice a crowd and yeah. what's going on? But you, you're so busy, you don't really kind of take it in. Yeah, yeah, right. And, you know, and it grew, you know, slowly. Like we always were a band that, that converted people through playing live, you know, mm-hmm. radio stations used to in those days, they would – they would um ring up people at random and play them a f- snatches of a song over the, over the telephone and say, what do you think of this one?
2: Yeah.
1: And it was like, you know, it was marketing yeah. research. And they would say, you know, 30 seconds, and they'd say, don't like it or, you know, mm. yes. Well, it got to the point where we'd played so much around Sydney and, you know, elsewhere that when they rang someone, there's a chance that that person might have actually been to one of our gigs and liked yeah. us and you recognised us. Put it on. And they say, on. like that one. <laughs> and so that's how we got, yeah. ac- you know, acceptable to radio because we weren't, naturally. I mean, they when we got signed up, the record industry... Almost universally thought it was hilarious because yeah. we were not playing what was popular. We were we weren't playing electronic pop music like yeah. Human League and Thompson Twins and all that. And we had no prospects as far as they are concerned. So why would anyone bother wasting time on this band? They're playing guitars for God's sake. Yeah, you know. So we we always kind of had to do our own sort of converting along the, on the ground because we didn't really get you know much help in the industry.
2: I mean, they played us eventually, but we did most of it ourselves. Do you remember the moment when you know you decided that you know you didn't have to sell the medical staples anymore? Like, the <laughs> yeah. was there a moment when you were like, "All right, I'm going to take this tiny boat out of the safe harbor of being a salesman and trying to"? B- I wasn't a salesman. I was actually working the, the raging yeah. Yeah. Seas you're, you're of in lab. Uh, I, was in yeah. the, I was in the. I was a, <laughs> oh, you know, so he a was, drone. He was doing the sales. He was yeah, the one. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But what I was doing, um, so I actually quit that job, and I had a bit of a run-in with the union. I tried to unionize the place, and that caused it.
2: <laughs>
1: that was quite a funny experience. I don't know if you want to go into that one, but uh, you know, I went down and met with the AWU and and the place was blackband and all this sort of stuff. Oh, you know, man. I'd been yeah. sacked, and they had to this- re- they restored my job, and it was all that sort of. Cr- this guy's just trying to pump and dump this business. <laughs> and this guy unionizing the workers. It was a, it was a weird situation, but anyway, I quit the job the day before our first gig. I actually had my last day. Yeah, right. So that was September of eighty one. Yeah. Um, I just decided that's it done mm-hmm. and uh, so it was on the dole then true you know I freely admit it and I've, I've well, paid well, my debt to society many that, many times since that, then you know to me it was a little uh, arts crawl, right. You know, was that Bob,
0: Bob Hawke surf team
1: that's <laughs> <what> they- <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember who was in, even the Prime Minister then but uh, 81 September 81 whoever that was yeah. but uh, yeah so I, I did quit and you know we did sort of take a bit of time to kind of get enough uh, income to be able to go off the dole but yep. as soon as we could we did because it was a pain in the ass yeah, yeah. You, know, you had to write down all these jobs you were
0: supposed to have gone for, all and, these and interviews it was just too hard to do. To, you know, yeah. You, yeah. It's, it's easier just to just you know make do on the gig money. Yeah, so you're a live music band at this point, and you're converting people via live music. It Sounds like at that time in Sydney, you could do five gigs a night. You know, you could bounce. I mean, between Newcastle and Wollongong, there was somewhere to play every night of the week. Absolutely, that was yeah certainly when we got popular, yeah. we were. Yeah, playing six, seven, you know, six nights a week, yeah. quite commonly. And when was the hard living? Because obviously, in every in every story, there is a little bit of hard living. Would you reckon that was that it? was hard living? That you was know, hard living. Yeah, yeah. yeah were, I, you know, I were mean, you pissing up each
1: each gig. Oh no, it wasn't like that. You know, I'm sorry, I can't give you those sort of stories. Yeah, stories that you know a lot of people I mean, fantasize about. No, but I'm
0: talking about the exhaustion of it all. Like you know, you come off a set and you you need a few beers to kind of settle down, and then you yeah, might well, even have a second gig. I had this weird thing after a while because, being the singer,
1: it was a bit different for me. Because unfortunately, I'm not like a Jimmy Barnes, yeah. or where I couldn't sort of go up and drink half a bottle of bourbon and then yeah. sing. Yeah. Or you know, even during the show, I found out kind of early, especially when the when the intensity of doing more gigs happened, yeah. that I actually would lose my voice if I yeah. didn't just okay. uh, not drink. And I actually ended up not drinking at all oh, when yeah. I was singing which was kind of weird because it made me kind of an angry man as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, on tour, you know, I get, get a bit, you know. Frustrated. Kind of, at yeah, the, yeah, yeah, just being like.
0: Yeah. Can you get rid of this bloke here, please? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, yeah, but, you know, the other guys in the band, you know, they could drink, you know, much more and sometimes, uh, unfortunately, some drank too much yeah. and, you know, that was led to problems of its own. But, yeah. yeah, it wasn't like that, you know. But, yeah, the hard living to me was, you know, basically Bumping spending in my up. life yeah. being a working musician and having to kind of toe the line to do that. Yeah, it wasn't really that social. For example, you know, we in the late 80s, we, we would tour to America and we'd go to America, the US, to the UK, and, and then back to the America for a couple of albums in a row where we were basically gone six months yep. at a time. And, you know, you come home and you talk to people and, you know, your friends and, and nearest and dearest, and you say, you know, what's been happening? And they say, oh, not much. Yeah, yeah. And they're right. You know, they haven't, you know, the dog hasn't died maybe or whatever, but, you know, you've missed out on those small little. Daily connections that yep. you that that are you know all about being close and involved in each other's lives, and you have to kind of pick up and reacquaint yourself, and it's a very disconnected feeling, you know. Yep. And you know, I, I was actually kind of unhappy in my thirties yep. for that reason, because um, you know I didn't really feel connected. Yep. And uh, it wasn't until I literally turned forty. I that day, I remember vividly the day I turned forty. I suddenly felt like a weight lifted off of my shoulders. I was like, thank God that's over. Was that what you are
0: thinking? You are thinking now we can kind of scale down a little bit? No,
1: no, not that. I mean, the band had actually at that point had announced it was breaking up, but that wasn't the reason. It was literally because I just found that personally, nothing to do with the band, but I mean, obviously it was related to the band, but just uh, my 30s, I didn't really feel very much satisfaction in that. I just felt like I'd kind of sacrificed my life for my career and all work and no play, so to speak, you know. Also, the other thing it was about was I – Turning forty, I suddenly realised, like you know what? Who gives a rat's yeah, what anyone
0: like, thinks? Now you, and, now you and, can just relish in being a middle-aged man. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, well, yeah. you know,
1: well, <laughs> I mean, thinking back now, I go God, that is that age Because I mean, mm-hmm. I know what it feels like now to be now, and that that feels looks pretty young to me now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, when you turn forty, I got to tell everyone: if you if you you know worried about it, if you're still younger than forty, don't worry because your body still looks after you pretty well for the next ten years. You got yeah. forty to fifty as, as a free decade unless you're unlucky. So most people feel just as good. You don't sort of creak as much getting in and out of cars as you hear old people doing, you know, <laughs> ma- you know, making those sounds. We all end up making those sounds, getting in and out of cars or whatever. Prov- providing but- you behave as well as Dave Pocket <laughs> be on tour. <laughs> Whatever. But, but the good part about turning 40 is you cease caring so much about yeah. what people think of you and you kind of go, you know what, I'm just me, so I'll, I'll just uh, do what I do, and it's such a relief after you know spending years basically
0: trying to look, you know, fulfil others' expectations. What you what are you kind of saying there? Even in this like conversation we're having, not necessarily about the band, but it is quite a relatable conversation we're having right now. That a lot, you know, you're talking to a bunch of people who, um, you know, there will be a lot of listeners who are about to turn forty who yeah. might, might exhale. Lots the- of listeners on. Tractors that have to climb in and out. Right? <laughs> yeah, Which right. Is, yeah. But you the know. the band actually is known for that as well as being kind of being I mean, old. No, no, because <laughs> <laughs> we are known for that now. <laughs> no, well, you read about it everywhere. It's the the, the Australians. Australians know the Hootie Gurus. Their guys. We're, proud, you, we're very proud of that. Yeah. We, we we've always wanted to be,
1: you know, seen as as normal people and not mm. you know jumped up pop stars. Mm. We deliberately made videos that kind of poked fun at ourselves and, you know, you know punctured the uh, pomposity of being a pop star. You know, all our videos was to our detriment really because people never, you know, a lot of people didn't take us seriously, you know, um, for that reason. They thought we were just a joke or, mm-hmm. or, or you know, just lightweight. Mm-hmm. But the songs themselves were about serious things. I mean, even though they have might have, you know, incredibly catchy melodies or whatever or, mm-hmm. you know, be really powerful rock and you know, dancing songs but underneath it all they, they had serious points to make. So, we, you know, we meant what we were doing. We weren't, just being cut, you know, just lightweight in that respect. Mm. But as far as, you know, like having ears and graces, we never want to do that. Yeah. And um, I think people understood that, the way, the way we carried ourselves and what we've, or, and the way we always our music's about that too. It's about being, not mystifying people, just if we've got something to say, we hope you understand what we're saying rather than trying to pretend we're being more in itself important
0: than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said the start, 12 years since your last record? Yeah, yeah, it was a long time. So it sounds like, reading up on everything that you guys have kind of putting out with this new record, it sounds like COVID, the pandemic might have triggered (laughs) something in you all. No, it didn't actually. It was actually in spite of COVID. We we started the first recording, the first
1: single came out in December of 2019. So um, we'd just begun making moves to start recording the album. We were going to do it as a series of singles was our plan. It was kind of like a a different approach, pretty much like when we first started. That's how we recorded the first album. So – We got that single done and we were just rehearsing the next few songs, thinking this, pick a single from these, and we'd written a song called Get Out of Dodge and Carry On, which had both become singles subsequently. But we had studio time booked. We had to cancel it because suddenly in March everything went to lockdown and we didn't see each other for three months at all, you know, because we stuck in our houses. No one was allowed to visit each other. And eventually we uh, got to the point where we could trust each other and uh, we went and uh, we found the studio – people we trusted as well and we got into the studio and did it and of course things got better then they went bad again and (laughs) it's been up and down but the songs weren't written about COVID they're written more about things that have been going on generally in my life in the case of the songs that I've written Brad's written a
0: couple of great songs on there as well so no I don't actually think it's a COVID album funnily enough do you think there was a creative flare spiked by the fact that you needed to get the hell out of the house and in the studio? Well, we actually set aside 2020 to be a year we're going to make the record. Yeah, we'd already planned that,
1: so we kind of planned on not doing much live work at that time. But we mm-hmm. didn't plan on doing none. Yeah, yep. which is what happened. <laughs> and then uh, you know we didn't plan on not doing work last year either. You know that was going to be our 40th anniversary. We kind of had a bit of a you know idea to do this tour, which in fact we're about to start which is, uh, you know, this tour with the, the Andy Warhols. Yep. That was a big plan. We obviously it was a long time in, in the planning and uh, that got delayed from last year to this year now. So, yeah, it was just – it was great though I mean, mm-hmm. in in sense of COVID because it gave us something to focus on creatively. We were stuck in our houses, but, you know, I was really busy writing mm-hmm. songs, working, you know, and then we were in the studio up and down and, and, and mixing them all. It just was – we always had something to do. Plus we were videos to make and singles
2: that were being released, so there was always something going on. So it kept me sane in that regard. Has the creative process changed over the years? Obviously since you were, you know, paying rent on <laughs> Palmer Lane to you know, now obviously you can live in a place where your car's not gonna end up upside down on fire <laughs> in Camperdown Park, you know. Unless the ra- be- unless the drains flood. <laughs> yeah, but has the process that you've all gone through to make these classic albums over the years, has that changed much over the time? Not for me. I mean I
1: think I'm better at writing. But you know, only people gonna answer that you know that listen, because they're the ones that ultimately decide. But I, I feel like I, you know, as a writer I come up with less duds, songs that I do go, you know, that's just not happening. A song may not be one we record, but it's mainly for the reason that oh it sounds like the sort of thing we would do, so yeah. we choose not to do that, to repeat ourselves too much. But the song itself's not like a bad song. It's actually yeah. a pretty good song. As far as writing, I've always been the same. I, I'm I'm a very lazy person, believe it or not, even though I work really hard when I'm working, I'm major procrastinator, so I don't have songs that are written waiting for the band to learn them or anything. I basically don't start writing songs till the album's planned.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What I do do is I accumulate little ideas on, on my phone these days. I used to be on the cassette player or whatever. And um, you know, I might be you know going for a morning walk and just a, a guitar riff idea comes in my head or a bit of tune and I'll just sing it into the microphone and they'll forget about it. And when it comes time to record an album and write some songs, I'll go back to these little source tapes and whatever you want to call them, files. And what still inspires me, I'll work on and turn it into a complete song. It might even be a half-finished song, but it doesn't feel that way to me. They're they're, they're kind of like just bits and bobs. So um, that's what I've always done, and and it's partly why we take so long to make albums because I always think to myself, I haven't got any songs, how can we make an album? Because there's nothing there. The, The cupboard's empty as far as I can tell. But, of course, there's all this sort of, stuff that's been sort of, you know, put aside for little, later. And little morsels. Yeah, so I've actually got to make myself sit down and have a deadline, and yeah. then I work on it and, and write the song. So all the songs in this new album, the brand, uh, brand's back in new, except for one, yeah. which I wrote um, in 2004, I think, 2003, a song called Settle Down, which is actually about growing old, so it's funny because yeah. it's the youngest <laughs> song. I mean, it's the songs from way back. But uh, the song's actually brand
0: new, so – um, I'm kind of proud of that, actually. I it, mean, there's no better deadline than the 40th anniversary either. Well, That'll yeah, fire you up. Yeah, well, just, just
1: seriously, you know, just book some studio time, have a producer lined up. Funnily enough, you'll you figure out you better do something when you, before you go in there. You don't want to look like an idiot when you walk in the door with nothing. <laughs> so that's what happens. And uh, are you ready to rock? <laughs> Not this minute But uh, give, me a, give
0: me a half hour I could probably be ready to rock <laughs> I've got to, got to warm my voice up That's what it is Yeah. Well I'm hoping you're ready to rock Dave You know there's a lot of people expecting to hear you A lot of people out there waiting to hear you And uh, you know everything's opened back up now So both your fans and your band Can all do what you love doing And I'll be there I'll be there in the crowd listening You've just released Chariots of Gods it's your 10th studio album, and in true Guru's fashion, 14 bangers. There's actually 17 on the deluxe double vinyl edition, and it's distinctively Hoodoo Gurus that I'm hearing when I listen to it. So thanks for joining us, Dave, and congratulations on everything you've done in your career and over the last couple of years during these difficult times. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks.